All right, everybody, welcome to Studio B. I am your host, Pastor MDH. Thank you so much for joining us here on the set today. Uh, We're so thankful that you continue to support through your fellowship, through your likes, through your shares. Um, It does not go unnoticed. So thank you very, very, very much. Uh, If you can do us a favor here, we're trying to approach 10,000 followers here in the next uh, four months. I believe that we can do it. I need you to go ahead and spread this podcast, comment on this podcast, share this podcast, send it to your friends and to your family, uh, get these other people involved. Uh, We're going to be doing some exciting things over the next couple of weeks um, and going to try to be doing some split screens and some on-air questions. Um, I believe we've been getting a whole lot of emails of people wanting to know certain things and asking that we dive into certain topics. And I think we're out of time in our podcast to where we can start entertaining those particular ideas. And so be looking for that over the next few weeks, next couple of months, as we're going to be trying to do some new and creative things uh, just to kind of keep it spicy here on the set of Studio B. So thank you to all of those who join and tune in. Today, man, today I'm in the set. I'm on the set by myself, man. I I want to just first say this, man. My, my heart, um, I want to see if I can kind of contextualize this in a place to make it not so ultra spiritual, kind of keep it on a ground level so that um, every and anybody can understand no matter where you are in life, no matter your church affiliation, your uh, belief in God, non-belief in God, or whatever the case may be. Uh, I am one that um, I look at things from a different perspective at times. I can be a lightning rod. Um, I can be a lightning rod within my family, amongst my friends, amongst my coworkers. Uh, I just I, I tend to think um, in a different way. Now, not to say that I'm eccentric in my thinking. I don't believe that I'm eccentric in that way. But if I see everybody, if I see 99 people going right and one person going left, I would tend to want to find out what the one person knows. Um, So my idea and and, and the way that I contextualize my thoughts and the way that I see the world is really from the outside looking in, not from the inside looking out. I try to look at it from a 30,000 foot view. And I use the illustration a lot of times because I travel so much, uh, COVID-19 notwithstanding, but I travel so much. And the two best parts of the plane ride for me are the takeoff and the landing. Uh, The takeoff, because in the first three to five minutes of taking off from that tarmac, uh, you're going up 1,000 feet, 2,000 feet, 3,000 feet, 5,000 feet, and you're able to get a perspective from the lay of the land that you otherwise would not enjoy unless you are higher up. So I love to sit at the window seat because I like to look out as the plane is approaching uh, the 36,000 cruising altitude. But I get to see these elongated highways, these perfectly manicured neighborhoods and uh, the symmetry of the city that I'm leaving or the uh, city that I'm flying into. It gives me a perspective that if I was just walking down the street, I would not be able to see simply because of my vantage point. And so the higher you go up, the more that you're able to see the complete picture. And when you get out of a situation, when you try to subtract yourself from the situation in regards to the experience and really try to take a broader view of what's going on, I believe that it brings things into light. And so when I'm looking on that airplane and looking outside of that window and looking at the ground down, it gives me such a unique perspective uh, on the cities that I'm coming into. And oftentimes uh, the cities that we travel into and that I do missions and that we visit, uh, these are not. Uh, particularly um, 
countries and, and towns that are highly tourist populated. Um, these are typically uh, outskirts areas. And so as you're flying into these countries, I know where I'm getting ready to go in my mind. I'm preparing myself for what I'm getting ready to see. But as I fly into these countries, I see the beauty of the country. And I see that from a much higher perspective. And so I say that because, you know, sometimes when I go against the grain, I don't go against the grain for the simple fact of going against the grain, not because it's chic, not because it's um, in vogue. Uh, I just want to expand the thought process. I want to say, okay, well, this is what we are. This is what we see. This is what we're going through. Now, let's look at some different vantage points to this problem that we all see that exist and maybe taking a 30,000 foot view as opposed to an in-the-moment view um, of where we are to try to get a different lens by which we can look at. And so I've used that not only in my personal life, my marriage life, the life with my kids, uh, uh, the life of my uh, career where I am in my calling. I try not to box myself into any particular viewpoint, and I try try my best to try to expand my horizons uh, to the best of my ability. I've always been a researcher. So I want to try to dig uh, in the weeds. I like the muddy part. I I like getting my hands dirty. So all the stuff and the minutia that typically frustrates a lot of people, I quite enjoy that stuff. Going down deep and finding out these point point zero zero decimal type of stats and diving all the way down uh, to the depths of the sea to try to figure out what's going on. I quite enjoy that because I believe it gives me a broader perspective um, in my viewpoints. And the thing that I always say, and many people that have been around me have heard me say this, uh, don't raise your voice, better your argument. Uh, if you gotta, if you gotta yell and scream, <laughs> if you gotta, you know, cuss people out to to get your viewpoint across, then you don't have a very solid viewpoint. So don't raise your voice, better your argument. If you have to raise your voice, it is simply because you know that at the base of your argument, it's not valid, and you know that there's a lot of gaping holes in your uh, in your argument, and therefore you have to raise your voice uh, in order to compensate for the areas that you have not researched, and so don't. Don't raise your voice, better your argument. And I believe we're in a time right now to where we ought to be able to sit down and and dredge through ideas, thoughts, and opinions to get to a place to where we can move forward on certain issues. Uh, if you've listened to the podcast in any uh, in any time, you've heard me. Uh, I don't want to say stand against a particular culture or a particular movement, um, but I've made my opinions quite known about Black Lives Matter and what I believe is the fallacies of Black Lives Matter um, and all that are going on in the woke culture that we are in right now, uh, the cancel culture. We talk about that a lot, but people ask me why. I had a conversation this morning on my way um, to the set. And the uh, conversation was kind of, uh, it was insightful, uh, really brought me to a point to where I had not really considered it. Uh, But the conversation was, that's what the world's going to do. The world's going to do what the world's going to do. That's not the church. So what's the point of keeping addressing these issues if they're going to do what they're going to do? And I understand that argument. Uh, to which I respond in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 13 says that we are the salt and the light of the earth. Uh, our job is to call truth to error. That's our job. Now, unfortunately, that's a very, very difficult position to be in um, because there's a lot of error. There's a lot of error. And error is not a matter of opinion. It is a matter of fact. 
Like truth is supposed to be objective. It is not supposed to be subjective. Truth is not supposed to be relegated based on your experience of truth, but rather an outside form that holds truth at a balance. And so the point of why we should speak about these things is because at least from the standpoint as a, ch- as a church, to which we are the church, not the building, uh, but we have been commissioned by God to be the salt and the light of the world. Now, notice he didn't say be the salt and the light of the church. He didn't say that. Um, Christ did not give us um, the the uh, the charge to be the salt and the light of the church, uh, because if we were to be the salt and the light of the church, it would just be a whole bunch of salt and light. He said to the church that we should be the salt and the light of the world, the outside world, not within the walls of the church of Jesus Christ. And there is some some accountability that must be done within the halls of the church. But he told us that we are to call truth to error whenever we see it. And that goes all the way across the spectrum. There is not one particular thing that would be more right or more wrong. If there is error, we are called to bring truth to it. And so I bring you to all of that to to what we'll be talking about today. Man, I, I am um, I lament in a real way where our generation is right now. Um, I have four beautiful children. <laughs> I keep calling them children now; they're actually young adults. Um, but I have a 21 year old, a 20 year old, an 18 year old, and a 16 year old. And my wife and I sit around and talk about what the world is going to look like for them in 10, 15, 20 years. If the world is the way that it is now in 2021 with seemingly no end in sight, what is it going to look like for our kids as they begin to navigate through life? Uh, What does it look like for them as they begin to get their own families? Uh, you know, start having their own children, have to start to, you know, navigate through careers and through home life and all of these different things and issues that they're going to have to face. What does it look like for them in the eventual day that we are blessed to have grandchildren? What will our grandchildren, what will the landscape of the world look like for our grandchildren? Uh, These are real conversations that my wife and I have on a regular basis. And I can tell you without being ultra spiritual, it drives us into our prayer closet quite a bit. It keeps us on our knees before the Lord so that we're praying for our children, praying for our future grandchildren, praying for this generation, praying for the people of this world so that we can get to a place to where it's not black or white or left or right, Democrat, Republican, this, that or the other, rich or poor, educated, uneducated, wherever it may be and all of the isms and schisms that are in the world, but that we can really get to a place. And this is not a kumbaya moment, by the way, uh, but we can get to a place to where we can love people just for being people. And so when we was talking um, a couple of days ago, I told her I lament for this generation um, who doesn't understand the brevity of life, but also don't understand the length of eternity. The brevity of this life is, the Bible says in the book of James, that your life is but a vapor of smoke. It is here today and it's gone tomorrow. Uh, I'll be 48 years old this year. And before you know it like that, 48 years have come and gone. Time is not slowing down for no man. 
Uh, it is amazing when you sit back and look at your yesteryears, when you can remember with such uh, vivid details your childhood and, you know, your, your teenage years and your young adult years and what you were doing. And you can remember those in vivid detail. And now here you are 10, 15, 20 years removed, and life seems to be moving at a warp speed. It is not slowing down for anybody. And so the, the, the brevity of life is that it is here today and gone tomorrow, but the length of eternity never begins and never ends. And so we spend but a small moment of time on this side of heaven, but once we transition over to wherever that may be, we will be there forever and ever and ever and ever. And so I lament for this generation and for this people group right now who don't understand that life is but a vapor of smoke, but the eternity that's waiting after this life ends is forever and ever and ever. And so when we're placing so much emphasis on the temporary stuff, on the temporary stuff that at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, it really doesn't matter. Yes, it can affect our way of life. Yes, it can affect the way that we live. Yes, it can affect us being happy or sad and all of these other emotions that just kind of come along with life. But life is but a vapor of smoke. And so I lament because I see that our generation right now is focusing on so much stuff that at the end of the day just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And so when I try to, to bring forth some balance to all of this uh, in a conversation where I believe that we need to be going, and it is to uplift all people. It is up to it is up to uplift all people and regardless of where that person is on the socioeconomic scale, where they are in regards to their race, their ethnicity, their way of life, whatever they choose to do with their own life is what they choose to do. Um, but honoring people just for the sake of them being people. And I believe that when you get to this particular place, we will we will see the glory and the manifest power of God uh, reign in our society. But until we stop with all of the foolishness, in my opinion, uh, we'll never get to a place to where we can enjoy the peace that are supposed to be ours. So I say all that because I have been invited to stand on a town hall. And just this morning before we started uh, filming uh, Studio B, uh, I made a decision to go. I was hesitant um, to participate uh, in this particular forum on race relations and how do you move forward? How do you push the uh, the needle of race forward? How do you get to a place to where we can reconcile the races? I was a little bit uh, skeptical um, and apprehensive about going because I know that I would be a lightning rod in that room. Um, I just don't want to get into the whole uh, minutia about, um, you know, black black people being so disenfranchised and disadvantaged and beaten up and taken advantage of. And, and everybody hates black people and black people can't do this and they can't do that. You know, I, I, I withdraw myself from those kind of conversations. I, I like I, I stand on the side of empowerment. Uh, I believe that black people are one of the strongest races that has ever uh, that God has ever blessed this planet with. Uh, we are absolutely resilient. Uh, we don't need white fragility. We don't need white guilt. Uh, we don't need white people coming up to me and apologizing for them being white. Um, and so I was a little bit apprehensive to sit and take this particular uh, invitation, but I've since decided to, and it's just this morning I've decided to do that. Um, and I'm going to try to bring forth a, a, a uh, perspective 
um, that won't be regurg- that has not been regurgitated across the masses. And so I want to kind of talk about that today. I, I want to talk about this because I believe that black people, and I'm and I'm not skewing this or um, um, you know putting the spotlight solely on black people, but I do believe that black people we have an obligation to do better. Okay, um, when you're looking at black people as a whole, and you got to go all the way back to 1619, I'm not talking about the 1619 project, but 1619, uh, when we were false, when we were first brought over here uh, to the to the Americas, and everything that has happened since then, and and the absolute horror, the absolute uh, evilness that is um, that is slavery, and the harsh persecution, the evil treatment of African American people or Africans uh, who were brought over, stolen from their own lands uh, in order to be brought over here to the Americas, and then being sold as slaves to all of these particular people. Now, I've often said, and a quick search of history will yield you the same results, is that. That America, by no way stretch of form, mastered the slavery process. Um, they were, as a matter of fact, some historians say that America was actually pretty bad uh, in slavery because it only segmented a part uh, a population of our um, of of our nation. Uh, whereas when you're looking at England, when you're looking at Brazil, when you're looking at Portugal, when you're looking at Spain, uh, slavery dominated the entire landscape. Uh, even in the times of slavery, you could go uh, to the north where you would be able to see black people roaming free and black people owning businesses. And then you would cross across that southern line and you would see an entirely different world. So America was, even from the inception of uh, slavery, uh, divided at its core about how to treat certain people. So America did not master slavery by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, when you're looking at the transatlantic slave trade, about 22% percent of all the slaves from Africa came to America. So about 22 percent. Over 44 percent of all of the slaves that came from Africa actually went to Brazil and Portugal and Spain. And so the Americas got a portion of those uh, slaves that were dropped off all along the Caribbean, uh, Haiti, uh, Dominican Republic, and then brought over to the Americas, uh, mainly by way of Louisiana and those port cities. But America, by no way, uh, uh, shape or form, mastered the slavery process. Now, the the horrors that America did in slavery uh, cannot go unnoticed. And I believe anybody that is true to history and anybody that loves history and would research history would find those same results. So talking about 1619 all the way up to 1863, 1865 with the Emancipation Proclamation, and then uh, uh, African Americans or slaves were given their freedom. Now, we all understand the problem with that because you, at one time, at one clean slate, um, freed freed um, almost a million uh, slaves all along the south, all along the southern borders, you freed them so that they were no longer working from forced servitude. Okay, but the slavery we all know, we all understand, was an economic business, and the reason why they fought so hard to keep slavery um, was because it was great economic advantage to the plantation owners. And so we know that through the sale of cotton, cotton and sugar canes and, and all of the things that the slaves were out there picking 10, 12, 14 hours a day. So slavery was an economic boom uh, that greatly enhanced the pockets of the masters. So when slavery was abolished, uh, we all know the story, and I'm just going in and setting this up. We all know the story. 
that when slavery was abolished uh, through the 13th Amendment, there was a amendment to the 13th Amendment, if I can put it like that, that there will be no involuntary servitude in these United States except for the committal of a crime. Uh, and so it said that you can no longer own slaves. So slavery is illegal. You cannot do it anymore except from a committing of a crime. And people, through the wickedness of their own minds, begin to start to manipulate laws in order to get those slaves back. But they could not put them back on plantations. So they put these vagrancy laws and they created all of these unjust laws in order that they may be apprehended and placed in jail. And by being placed in jail, you essentially still have a slave that is working for free. And you are able to do that even under the passing of the 13th Amendment, which is what got Abraham Lincoln killed, by the way. And so we know the, 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 the sordid history of slavery. But as you go back and look at 1865 and beyond, and even in the 1930s, 1940s, all the way up to the 1960s, and you look at these pockets of history where African Americans were doing tremendously well in the midst of a very harsh and a very problematic society. Uh, black people were able to rise and not just rise, but thrive in their communities. They were entrepreneurs. The family unit was intact. The mother was there. The father was there. The siblings were there. They were creating a family within their homes. Uh, you saw the African-American community thriving, uh, even under very harsh conditions. And I'm even talking about as recently as even under Jim Crow. Uh, the, the, the stats from Jim Crow to 2021 are absolutely mind numbing that even in the midst of a white water fountain and black water fountain that had signs on the door that said that black people must pick up their food from the back of the restaurant. You are not allowed to come in the front of the restaurant. We saw the home ownership of black America skyrocket. We saw three out of four people, three out of four African-American families in the 1950s and 1960s owning homes in the midst of evil Jim Crow era. And this is even before uh, Johnson signed the FHA. Uh, the, uh, the Fair Housing Act. This is even before that. So I bring all of that up because we see that even through the midst of very oppressive times, African-Americans have thrived. And so I say that because if you leave African-Americans to do what they do, they will always thrive. So I don't need people coming up to me and I don't need Coca-Cola uh, telling their staff and their senior leadership how to be less white. I don't I don't need that. And, and to pander to black America in that regard to me is greatly insulting. Uh, we just had a funeral here the other day, unfortunately, where a young man was murdered um, and he was murdered at the hands of another black man. Uh, there was no Black Lives Matter. There was no protest about a black life, a young black life, promising, uh, a promising young man who had a career and a future ahead of him was gunned down by the hands of another black man. Now, we'll say it and we'll go out of there and we will riot. We will do this and we will do that if a black man is killed at the hands of a white cop. But in the same sense, you see that's 91 percent of African-Americans who were murdered in the United States, 91% of African-Americans who were murdered in the United States are murdered at the hands of other African-Americans. Okay, so, so at the end of the day, there was nobody marching outside. There was nobody saying, you know what, this is unacceptable. And this particular young man had a family, he had a wife, he had kids, he had a mother, he had a father, he had people that loved him. So this is the person that was snuffed out of life by the hands of another African-American person, and we said nothing about it. We also know that 75% of that 91% of African-Americans uh, African who were murdered by other African-American men 
or people, 75% of that number goes unsolved. Okay, so there's a high likelihood that the person that killed this young man will never be caught. There's a high likelihood of it. There's a high, high likelihood of it. And so when I talk about the issues that are in the black community, not, not, uh, we are not uh, disregarding the issues from the social side, uh, from government programs to economic conditions to the chasm that exists um, in, in these particular areas and the wealth gap and all of these particular issues. We don't ignore those things, but what, what, what I try to bring to the table, everybody, is that we owe a debt to ourselves to do better. And this is actually a biblical principle because the Bible says that when I get to heaven, um, you know, there's a, 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 um, a passage where um, Jesus talks about the story of the talents. And there's a man that got five, there's a man that got two, and then there's a man that got one. The man that got five went out and reproduced his five. He doubled the five that he had and came back with ten. The one that had two doubled his two and came back with four. There's another one that had one, but he dug his into the ground. And so when the master came back after a long time, he calls these particular three men to account. He wants these three men to give an account of what their life produced on earth. And so he goes to the man with five and the man with five says, master, uh, I've done well. The five that you gave me, I made it 10. Here it is. 10 talents. I doubled the work in which you gave me. I doubled the blessings that you laid up on my life to which the master says unto the one with five, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little things. Come, I'll make you a ruler over many. He goes to the one with two and he says, show me what you got. The one with two is greatly ecstatic. And he says, master, you gave me two, but I'm returning back unto you four. I've doubled the blessings that you've given in my life to which the master says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. Come now, I'll make you ruler over many. And then he gets to the one that had one. And the one that had one said this. When he asked him, he says, what did you do with the talent that I gave you? What did you do with the life that I gave you? Here's what he said. Master, I knew that you were a hard man. I knew that you sold, you reap what you did not sow. And so here's what I did. I took the one talent that you gave me. And because I knew you were a hard man, I went and hid it in the ground. And so here it is, master, the one talent that you gave me. Now think about this from the other two talents and the other two people. Here it is, this man is bragging, even within himself, feeling a sense of pride because he gave back to the master the very thing that the master gave to him. The one talent, he went and hid it under the dirt and then gave it back to the master as if he was doing the master a favor. Now watch these words. The master said unto him, you wicked and slothful servant. If you knew that I was a harsh man, if you knew why I reaped where I did not sow, then you should have at least put my talent with the bankers where it would have earned interest. If you knew that, you should have at least done that. There's, it, you could have at least done that if you knew that I was a hard man. But since you haven't, he said, take the one talent that you have and give it to the one that has five and then take this servant and cast him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here it is, the, 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 the role, the, 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 par the parable, if you will, of accountability, that each person is going to have to give an account for his or her life. And when that day comes, there will be no excuses. I won't be able to say unto God, well, the system held me back. 
I won't be able to say unto God, well, nobody liked me. Nobody gave me a chance. Everybody was against me. I was not able to do the things that you called for me to do. I won't be able to give those excuses because I'm going to give a personal account of the life that God has given me. And in that same regard, as difficult as life may be, as challenging as life may be, as, as many curveballs that life may throw at us, we are responsible to give back unto God better than what he gave unto us. But now we're in a place to where we are blaming every and anybody because of our lack of success. Uh, there was a recent study out of Baltimore um, where it took this young man, and I won't mention his name, but this story is easily found uh, on a quick Google search. Uh, he had a grade point average, a GPA of 0.013. That, not 0.13, but 0.013. Now watch this. That put him at 62 in a class of 120. A 0.013. Point one three, that that grade point average, that GPA put him at sixty two. That means that he was right there at the halfway mark in his class. Now watch this. Now, 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 now please hear what I'm saying. He missed over three hundred days of school, three hundred days of school, and yet he was getting ready to graduate with a zero point zero one three. And when I sit there and put and, and aim to those those particular stories, they are not arbitrary stories to which you just pull out of the air and hope that it sticks. Uh, no, these are real stories that are happening in mainstream America where we are setting our children up for failure. The school systems. Um, I have four kids and they are all in school. Uh, two are in college. One is getting ready to go to college. Uh, I don't believe that college is for everybody. I don't believe that you have to go to college in order to be successful or to be a productive member of society. So I don't buy into that whole notion. Uh, I do believe that people can be productive and be very, very valuable members of society without college degrees. Um, but I do believe that education is valuable for the success of the person. I do believe that the lack of education in a person's life will directly influence how successful they are in life. And again, not necessarily pointing to a college degree, as I do have numbers to prove that a college degree does afford you more opportunities economically and professionally, but notwithstanding just to the college main. Uh, education matters and the way that we educate ourselves and the more education that we have, the better our lives can be, not just for us right now in the here and now, but for our generations that follow us. And so when you're looking at this young man who is at the 62 percent at 62 in a class of 120, uh, he has people that are under him. He has 61 people that are under him. Now, I want you to hear this, everybody. Um, that is in our communities that are happening right now. And many will say, well, that's because of this and that's because of that. That's because of this. That's because of that. I believe one of the things that I fight for the hardest and one of the things that I totally am on board with is school choice. I believe in school choice. I believe in school choice because I do not believe that you need it to be that you have to be restricted to your zip code. And that's the school that you have to send your children to. I believe in school choice. I believe in school charter. 
uh, because I believe that the parents should be able to put their child in the best opportunity available in order for the success of that child. So I believe that we need to be looking at programs like that that give parents a greater opportunity to bless their children, to put them in a more advantageous um, uh, light. And so all of this stuff that is going on in our community right now, everybody, all this stuff that is going on in our community right now is, for me, a very, very disturbing trend. Um, and I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm not the chicken little. I'm not going to say that the sky is falling. Uh, I'm not going to say that. Uh, I don't believe that we're at a tipping point to that degree just yet. Uh, but I do believe that we're trending in that direction where uh, there's not going to be a stop button. I don't believe that somebody's going to say, okay, whoa, that's enough. I believe that we're pushing the envelope more and more and more and more and more and more and more. We're getting, you know, we're, we're trying to get outside of the bounds more and more and more and more and more and more and more. And, and, and things that used to be taboo are now just mainstream. The things that used to be kept in the closet are now sitting in the living room. And so all of these things that are going on are progressing us to a time to where I believe we're going to be in a very, very vicarious position. I was reading the story today, uh, even along these same lines, that there is a very uh, big university, a major university. Um, when I say the name, you'll know who exactly it is. Uh, Columbia University, Columbia University is hosting six separate graduation ceremonies based on income levels, race and ethnicities. Columbia University is planning to hold six additional graduation ceremonies for students according to their race and other aspects of how they identify. The New York School's website graduating detail ceremonies for Native, Asian, Latinx, Black students are taking place for Columbia College, Engineering, General Studies, and Bernard College at the end of April. Another dub FLI graduation is the first generation of low-income community. The school will also host a lavender graduation for LGBTIAQ plus community. I had to read that slow. Now watch this. Columbia University, the prestigious Columbia University is going to hold six separate graduation ceremonies based on income levels, race, and ethnicities. They're going to hold six separate graduation ceremonies based on race, ethnicity, and how people identify themselves. So there will be a native ceremony. There'll be an Asian ceremony. There'll be a Latin X ceremony. There'll be a black ceremony. And then there will be a low income ceremony. And then there'll be the lavender ceremony. They'll hold all of these particular ceremonies because they want to be inclusive by they want to be inclusive of everybody's identification, but by being inclusive, they're being exclusive. Did you notice the wording that they're hosting six separate graduations? So they want to be inclusive by being exclusive. Now, I want you to think about this is Columbia University, one of the one of the most prestigious universities of our land. 
um, that puts out some top level, uh, top level uh, people of academia. Um, this is a very, very, or was, I don't know uh, the landscape of it now, but um, was a very, very prestigious university in regards to its education requirements. Um, so now this, this, this think tank is now going to hold six separate graduations based on income level, race, and ethnicities. And I'm asking everybody, when are we going to say enough is enough? Um, when are we going to say enough is enough? Do, do you not understand? And, and, and I understand that what I'm getting ready to say is a biblical premise. I, I get that. But when you get to heaven, if you get to heaven, uh, there will be no black section, no white section, no Hispanic section, no Asian section. There won't be a Republican section, a Democratic section, an independent uh, section. There won't be a Baptist section, a Catholic section, a Methodist, a Episcopalian, a Lutheran section. There won't be sections in heaven based on how people identify here on earth. This thing about identifying race and ethnicities, this is a human thing. If you read, if you understand what the Bible says, and again, maybe you don't care what the Bible says, and that's completely within your right. But the Bible says clearly in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that he created man in his own image and according to his own likeness. He did not say that he created the black people, the white people, the Hispanic people, the Asian people. All of those were included in the one man, Adam. From the one man, Adam, we get all of these other cultures and ethnicities and, and all of these other things come from the one man, Adam. And so now here we are. We are separating people and, 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 and we justify separating them by talking about we want to be sensitive to how they identify. And everybody, when is it going to be enough? When is it going to be enough? When are we going to wake up and realize that the differences that we, that the, the similarities that we have are greater than the differences that we highlight. When are we going to wake up and understand? When are we going to wake up and, 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 and raise our hands and say enough is enough? When you're looking at, um, I was very, very bothered by a couple of stories um, that I saw um, this news cycle, uh, cause I, I'm under the impression I heard this line the other day. It said, you're worried about leaving a better planet for our kids. How about leaving better kids for our planet? You know, you're worried about leaving better planet for our kids. How about leaving better kids for our planet? You know, creating, um, this culture to where we are calling out everything because it is insensitive or because somebody may be deemed offensive. Um, here we are right now in 2021, and I want you to think about the things that we acknowledge and the things in which we put in the public square. Uh, I, I did not watch it, unfortunately, uh, not unfortunately, fortunately, I did not watch it. Um, but the early reviews to the Grammy Awards that just went off uh, last week is that ratings show, early ratings show that the Grammy Awards of 2021 show a record low in viewership. Uh, we the Grammy Awards, and I looked at snippets of it on Yahoo.com, uh, the Independent, and 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 other uh, sites that I follow. And the pictures of what was going on on the Grammys was, uh, I'm not going to say disturbing. I guess it's just kind of par for the course. We have kind of created this society where you know just kind of anything goes. But it was a raunchy, um, uh, uh, it was a raunchy, a raunch fest. 
of all things that were inappropriate to be putting on public TV on the primetime hour. And so we celebrate people who are making careers and making living by doing things that used to be inappropriate, uh, used to be at a place to where you didn't do such things. Now, not only are they being celebrated, but we're giving them gold awards and giving them a lot of money to produce this kind of stuff. And and I'm not going to back away from this, everybody. I'm Listen, I did a whole um, six-month study on the study of music. Uh, music is one of the most powerful influences that we have in our day. You may be whatever age, uh, and you all I got to simply do is put on a beat or put on the words of a song that you heard 35 years ago and that chorus, that hook, uh, all of that will be uh, regurgitated into your mind, right? Because music sticks with us, the lyrics stick with us, the beats stick with us. There are things in which you're never going to be able to get out of your mental. Uh, Music is a powerful influence, and I believe it is one of the most powerful medians that we have in our world today. Music can draw you or music can drive you. It has that kind of power based on who's behind the music. And the music right now, the music right now, the music right now, the music right now is at a place to where it is not uplifting. It is not empowering. It is not telling the younger generation that you can be all that you can be. It is not telling them to stretch beyond their means and do things that are outside of the norm. It is telling them to acquiesce to a place and do what everybody else is doing. And when we're propagating this, not only to the masses, but more in particularly to our children and to the younger generation, what is this going to produce? I understand the argument, everybody. I understand the argument of two live crew. I understand the argument of those even in my generation where that was a part of what we listened to. But as you know, things progress worse and worse and worse. So here we are in the primetime hour of American television, and we are putting these particular people up. We're putting the Cardi B's. We're putting the Megan the Stallions up. We're putting them up, and we are lifting them up as role models to these young girls. Look at what they're doing. You can be the same. And then at the same time, we're saying that, uh, Dr. Seuss, the, the, the material that you produce is offensive. Uh, that's offensive. Dr. Seuss is offensive. Uh, Speedy Gonzalez is offensive. Uh, Speedy Gonzalez is offensive because it offends uh, Hispanic Americans. I know a lot of Hispanic Americans. Ain't none of them offended. Pepe Le Pew has now been canceled because he offended and stereotyped French men. But 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 Dr. Seuss is offensive. Speedy Gonzalez is offensive. Pepe Le Pew uh, is offensive. All of these people are offensive. But the stuff that we've seen on the award shows, the things that are propagated on TV, the stuff that's propagated uh, in the news cycles, that stuff's not offensive. I can play that stuff all day long. And so what are we looking at when we see the era of the times in which we're living in right now? Well, I want to bring you to something because I hope in Jesus name that I want to try to bring some balance to whatever uh, the conversation may be. But I want to share this with you um, because I, I, I am hosting a uh, class right now uh, called uh, Manifest. It's biblical manhood, it's manifest, and it's uh, a male is born, but a man is developed. Uh, it's a 24-week course that uh, God has graced me to put together, and I told him last night on our meeting, 
um, that I have uh, brokered many books. Um, I've written, uh, I've written study books through the Book of Romans, the Book of Acts, the Book of John, Saint John, First uh, and Second Thessalonians, the Book of Revelation, the Book of Genesis. Um, what else did I do? I think I charted the the Book of Psalms. Uh, I think I also did uh, the Book of Isaiah. Um, I did um, a couple other ones. Um, but this, as I told them last night, this is by far, and this is even including, I wouldn't put it on the scale of the book that I wrote that was published, but it's in that vein in regards to being transformational. Uh, this particular study book, uh, Biblical Manhood Manifest, is some of the best material that I believe God has blessed me to do. Um, it is absolutely transformative. Um, the stuff that we talk about within this particular book and this study course over the next 24 weeks when we're talking to nothing but men about issues that are going on in their lives that are affecting mainstream men on every single turn. Uh, we're talking about stuff like the study of God. We, we start the study off by saying uh, we need to understand who God is. We need to go to our creator, the potter, uh, the one who molds the clay. Who is this God? Uh, we talk about a study of man. How was we created? How were we were uh, created? What was our purpose? What was our intent? Uh, we talk about the study of purpose that every person, every single person, every this is not a Christian thing. This is a human, uh, a human thing. Every person has a purpose. And the quicker that you find that purpose, the quicker you get to your purpose, the quicker you get to your purpose, the more you benefit mankind. We talk about the study of, of a wife, the study of family. Uh, we're right now talking about the study of sex. We're understanding sex from a, a godly perspective. What does the Bible say about sex? We're talking about a study of sex and understanding the wife and understanding the woman. And then just recently, we talked about a study of pornography, how pornography is destroying the lives of men. So we're talking about these 24 weeks and every single week we are talking about issues that are pertaining to men's lives. And I told them last night that one of the vices of the enemy, one of those chief attacks of the enemy is to get the man out the way. Uh, the Bible says this, that no man can come into a house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. He's got to bind the strong man. He's got to he's got to render the man um, incapacitated because he can't come into the house and take the man's things unless the man unless the man is bound. And so one of the attacks of the enemy, and I believe it is one of the attacks of the enemy, is to bind the man, is to render the man incapable, um, is to chop him down to a degree to where he's no longer able to function in the world as a man. And you've seen this over the last two, three, four, five, six, ten years, where we're not talking about toxic masculinity. We're talking about men being too manly. We're talking about men coming into their emotions. We're talking about men trying to find their feminine side. We're talking about men suppressing their feelings and doing all of these other things, trying to acquiesce to a society that says men are being too manly. And then on the other side of that, we now seeing these gender swap games going on. Uh, we're seeing people in all different ways of life now questioning their gender, reassociating their gender and identifying as different genders. We're seeing all of this stuff going on because at the root of it, it is an attack on God's design. So in second Timothy, and I'm just going to read this very, very quickly. In 2 Timothy, Paul says this in chapter number three, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Perilous times will come. 
He said, know this. He said, know this. This is not going. It shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, You shouldn't be shocked when you see these things start to come across the landscape of your particular culture or your society. He says, know this. This is what's going to happen. Perilous times Word perilous there means evil. Uh, Perilous times will come. That's the promise. These evil times are going to come. And then in verse number two, verse number two, Paul is getting ready to name 18 things that will describe or that will relegate us being in these perilous times. I want you to listen to this list. Paul says men will be lovers of themselves. That's the first thing that he mentioned. He said, know this in the last days, perilous times will come. Well, how are you going to know that you're in the last days? The first one that he mentions is that men are going to be lovers of themselves. Men are going to love themselves. Now, watch this, everybody. It, it will be it's absolutely impossible for you to love man, man to man. That is the godliness relationship. That is righteousness between man and man. That it's impossible for you to treat another person with dignity and respect if you first don't have a love for God. You can't do it. He said men are going to be lovers of themselves. Men are going to think about themselves before they think about anybody else. That is dominating the landscape right now. We are lovers of ourselves. And not to get into a debate with anybody, but I can handle myself in any particular regard. That's why we abort 1.5 million babies a year. It's not about the baby. It's not about the responsibility of the act that we participated in that brought forth the baby. It is about us loving ourselves and don't want to be inconvenienced. So he says men will be lovers of themselves. Then they're going to be lovers of money. I know everybody just got that stimulus check that just hit your bank account some days ago, some weeks ago. But here's a question that I ask you. Where did it come from? If your child came home with, you know, $5,000, what's the first question that you're going to ask your child? Where did it come from? Men will be lovers of money. The Bible has a lot to say about money. As a matter of fact, Jesus talked more about money than he talked about heaven or hell. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about money. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that you can't love both God and money. You're going to love one and hate the other. The third thing he says that men are going to be boasters. Then they're going to be proud. Then they're going to be blasphemers. Then they're going to be disobedient to parents. They're going to be disobedient to parents. And again, I want you to look at this list, listen to this list. And Paul said, this is how you're going to know that you're in the last days. This is how you're going to know that perilous times are coming. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse number five, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Now watch what Paul tells you about these people. Turn away from them. He says, for of the sort of those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins and led away by various lusts, always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of truth. That's what Paul said the last days are going to be like. He said that they're going to be they're going to have a form of godliness. They're going to have crosses around their neck, monogram Bibles. They have a form of godliness. They know where to insert their amens. They know all the praise and worship songs of their day. They're going to have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. And what is the power? The power is the power that stops them from doing the very things that he named starting in verse number two. And then he says from these people, these people turn away from them. 
because these are the ones that go into households and they make captive of gullible women loaded down with sins and led away by various lusts. So now here we are in 2021 where we are now mandating the man. We have now relegated the man to being less than a man. And we've all but taken out the man. We're talking on going all the way back to the welfare state where it's more advantageous for a single mother uh, to say that she's a single mother and to not get married because by getting married and bringing an additional income into the home, then she will lose out on the money that she gets from the government. And so the government will rather you marry the government than marry a man. So we have now relegated men to all of these particular positions. And now I believe this, hear this, is that when the man is out of the way, when the man is out of the way, the house is gullible. Many of you guys know my story. I've told it ad nauseum. My mother loved me she, and, and loves me. My mother, I uh, just talked to my mom yesterday morning. I love, love my mom. But my mom could never teach me on how to be a man. She could provide a roadmap about what to do and what not to do, but she couldn't teach me uh, the core concepts of being a man. And I would be remiss if I did not say that not having a father in my life affected me in more ways than one. I, I can absolutely say that I've come to grips with that, that me not having a father, or me having a father, of course I had to have a father in order to be born, but me not having a father in my life absolutely adversely affected me. Um, not having a male role, a male figure in my life um, absolutely affected me. And so everybody, in the name of Jesus, what does this, what does this all mean? Um, with all that is going on, with all that is going on, to my original thesis that I started off the podcast with, um, when we look at what's going on in our landscape, it is easy to check out to tap out, to say that I'm done. Uh, I have been tempted on more than one occasion to tap out. <laughs> I have. Uh, I'll be honest and transparent with you when I say that, um, that I have been tempted to tap out because I've gotten to the place of a, of a Isaiah that, Lord, who has believed our report? You'll hear more about that in a second. But at the end of the day, I want to try to be a bridge I don't live my life to be divisive. I don't live my life to be a lightning rod. I want to be a bridge. I want to be able to bridge ideas. Um, and I believe, you know, in my life, I've been blessed by God to be a bridge. And, and, and not just in the church, in the secular jobs that I've been able to attain, um, God has used me to be a bridge, and, and, and I, I praise God um, for that gift and for that ability. I want to be a bridge. I want to provide balance um, because right now we're too tilted to one side, and I believe that there are legitimate sides to both arguments, but if we can bring people to a center place, um, we'll be able to make some dramatic movements uh, in our culture. And so I want to encourage you, man, because the platform here at Studio B, my platform, um, is to really try to be a voice. Uh, I get so many emails, you know, and, and I'm, I told you a couple of weeks ago that I wanted to uh, read a couple of those emails online uh, and for the, the people watching, because I believe if you heard it from another person, um, it would encourage you. Um, because I believe that right now we are forcing people into a corner. If they dare come out of that corner, we're going to 
uh, greatly ridicule, persecute them and make sure that they understand whose world they're in. And so there are a lot of people out there right now that feel like their voice is being taken. Uh, because it does not come on the side and does not mesh with the current culture that we're in right now. And I want to encourage you. Um, if you're saying anything significant, you're going to offend somebody. If, if God is using you in any way, shape, or form, you're going to offend somebody. You can't speak truth to a world that lives in error and not offend them. But but everybody, offense is okay. It's part of the dialogue. It's part of the conversation. It's, it's a part of how we do life. And so if you're not saying anything significant, if you don't have any real deep takes about the things that are going on in our landscape, then yeah, you're not going to offend anybody. But if you have any opinions that is contrary to what is going on, then you're going to cause offense. And it's okay. It's okay. As I was thinking about my grandmother, and I'm done here, y'all. Uh, I was thinking about my grandmother last night. My grandmother, uh, God bless her soul. Uh, she went on to glory December the 22nd, 2018. Uh, my grandmother, to which I got on a Greyhound bus starting at 11 years old every single summer. Uh, got on a Greyhound bus, headed to Texarkana, Texas, Um the day after school let out every single summer uh, from the time I was 11 years old all the way up until I was almost like 16 um, to go and spend the summer with my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother was the hardest working person that I've ever seen in my life, with the exception of my mom. I think they're kind of battling for hard work, and I think that's where I get uh, my, my work ethic from. But uh, my grandmother was um, determined. She had um, 11 kids. Uh, my grandmother was uh, shot in the stomach by her husband, my grandfather. Um, my grandmother experienced um, great pain, great persecution, um, tremendous heartache um, in her life. But I never saw my grandmother complaining. I, 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 I can't recall a time that my grandmother was sitting on the couch talking about how hard her life was. I, I just can't ever remember a time like that. My grandmother was a um, dishwasher, a waitress, a cook um, for the majority of her life, um, working nine to five jobs uh, and odd jobs um, for the majority of her life. Uh, I even bust some tables um, a few summers down in Texarkana when she was a cook at one of the diners in, in Texarkana. Uh, but I've never seen her complaining. And, and I take that attitude within myself. I never, I never saw my mom complaining. You know, my mom had me, she was 16, year old, 16 years old. I never saw my mom complaining. And so when, when I see, when I'm, when I'm around people like that that just get the job done, um, I, I, it, it resonates within me. And so living in this world right now where everybody is offended and everybody is mad at somebody because of what somebody has told them, I... I don't know what that feels like because you still got to get the work done. And so if you're doing anything significant, you're going to be an offense to somebody. And so everybody, I just want to, I want to, I want to end with just this one verse. This is out of Timothy, uh, second Timothy chapter three that we just looked at, but it's in verse number um, uh, 13 and 14. It says, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's what Paul told Timothy. 
Paul said there's going to be evil men and imposters. They're going to get worse. They're going to deceive, and they're going to be deceived themselves. But I want you to hear the admonition that Paul gives his young protege. In verse number 14, he says, But you, that's Timothy, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. That's what Paul told Timothy. He said, all this stuff is going to happen, starting in chapter number 3, verse number 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse number 13. Evil men are going to grow more and more. They're going to deceive people. They're going to be deceived. But here's what he told Timothy. He says, but you, Timothy, continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing who you learned them from. That's all I'm saying, man. Uh, That's all I'm saying. I'm saying that remember who you are. And continue in those things. Continue in them. Hold fast. Listen, when you want to give up, don't. Uh, when you want to tap out, don't. I know it's tempting, but continue in the things in which you've learned and been assured of. God has kept us all this time. Uh, God is um, faithful. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He's never going to put morals in what we're able to bear. If he did it for my grandmother, if he did it for my mother, then he'll do it for me. He'll do it for my kids, for my grandkids, and my great-great-grandkids. And so I believe that God is faithful. I want to encourage you, man, that I know a lot is going on. I want to encourage you with the Word of God to continue in the things in which you have learned. Hold on to God. Hold on to God. Hold on to God. Uh, He's not going to let you down. Uh, Everybody, I want to thank you so, so very much, man. Um, As I said at the beginning, we're going to be doing, trying out a couple of different things. Uh, I'm going to try out the Zoom. I I have several guests. Uh, that um, that I have booked to come on the podcast, uh, but I got to get with our team and figure out how to do the Zoom um, podcast. Uh, I got to figure that stuff out. Um, there's a lot of stuff that is coming up in the next couple of weeks, next couple of months uh, that I'm excited about. I'm very, very excited about. And remember, we're trying to hit 10,000 subscribers. We're right now we're at 3,600 uh, in the next four months. We want to do that by the end of summer. And I believe that by God's grace, we can do that. So I need you to like, share. I need you to send this to your friends. I need you to comment. Listen, if you don't agree with all that is going on on Studio B, that's why we got it. Thank you for all those dislikes. There's a lot of dislikes. And I appreciate that. In Jesus' name, I want you to be engaged. Uh, Everybody, I am man enough to have the conversations with any and everybody uh, about the opinions that I hold and being able to defend those opinions, uh, even in the midst of harsh scrutiny. So um, I want to thank you guys in the name of Jesus for, uh, for, for following and for supporting this podcast. Um, there are going to be some stuff coming up to where you can get some merch, some Studio B, this really nice logo in the back, um, Studio B, the, the paraphernalia, the cups, and all of that other good stuff. God has got a tremendous plan for this pl- uh, this podcast, and I'm excited to see what God is going to do. I want to thank my uh, my team, Steve Miller on the audio, Dominique Kennard-Bing on the video. She does all of that other good stuff. All of those who like, follow, and subscribe, email call, text. God bless you. Remember, you can find me at PastorMDH at StudioB.com or even you can call me 832-473-1052. Yeah, I just put my cell phone number out there for you. Give me a buzz if you want to talk about something. If you think you got something valuable to add, come on, be a guest here on Studio B. We love you, man. Until next week, we'll see you then.